this Sunday being a Sunday of emphasis on marriage and family, I believe the Lord has led me to preach the most improbable text on family and marriage in the whole of the Bible. The text that I feel led to preach with you this morning is Job chapter 2, verse 9, which says, and then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What an unusual scripture verse for the preacher to preach this Sunday. And we need to remember as we consider this verse that Mr. and Mrs. Job were living a life of catastrophe. They had passed through the waters of tribulation and trial and had experienced stress like few others of us have experienced and like few others of us experienced in the Bible times. Just to review for your sake of understanding, in Job chapter 1, we are told that Job and Mrs. Job heard that some of their oxen and donkeys had been stolen. They heard that some of their servants had been murdered. They heard that some of their other servants and some of their sheep were killed by fires that were started by lightning. Mr. and Mrs. Job had heard that some of their camels had been stolen and more of their servants had been murdered. They heard that their children, all of their children, had died in a building collapse. This was the context. This was the experience that Mr. and Mrs. Job had had when Mrs. Job said what she said in Job 2 verse 9. And if that wasn't enough stress, if that wasn't enough pain and problem and trial and tribulation, we learn in chapter 2 of the book of Job that Job saw sickness come to his body. In fact, painful sores covered his entire body, we're told, in in Job chapter 2. And it was in response to these stressors. It was in, in the light of these losses that Mrs. Job blurted out, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. There is a study which lists some of the top stressors in life. And the top five in the study I saw, at least, of stress and loss and difficulty, the death of a loved one. Number two, divorce. Number three, moving. Number four, major illness or injury. Number five, job loss. Of course, in these last few weeks during Dorian and the aftermath of Dorian, the persons of our commonwealth have, many of them, lived three at least of the top five stressors that are possible. The the things like the death of a loved one, moving, and job loss, three of the top five, plenty and plenty of our fellow Bahamians have experienced and are still experiencing this morning. And then on top of those stressors and on top of those losses, many in this country have endured the loss of one's home, the loss of one's possessions, the loss of one's pets, the loss of one's whole community, the loss of one's church, the loss of one's whole way of life. I don't think it an exaggeration to say that currently late 2019 in Bahamaland, we live at the address of P.O. Box BS Catastrophe. And our phone number is 1-800-DISASTER. 
it is very likely that there are a lot of Mrs. Job's in our nation. Please understand, when I use the term Mrs. Job's, I'm not at all suggesting that the give-up outlook is an outlook only of women or only of married women, not at all. I know that plenty of us men struggle with the temptation to want to give up in the difficult and dark days in which we all live. The Mrs. Jobs who are around us in these difficult days are thinking, and some are saying, give up, quit, there's no point, throw in the towel, we're sunk, it's impossible to rebuild, there's no hope, curse God and die. The historic Mrs. Job erupted with curse God and die, and the figurative Mrs. Job's Some of them, Christians, have followed suit ever since, right up to today. As has been mentioned, this is the last Lord's Day of a week where our assembly has stressed the blessing and the essentiality of marriage and family in God's plan of things. So in light of that theme, together we overcome that theme and that focus on marriage and families. Let me ask you the question. The elephant in the room. How do stress and wanting to give up intertwine with marriage? In these difficult days in which we all live, days of stress that we never could have imagined, days of loss that we never saw even in our nightmares, how do stress and loss intertwine with marriage? In these days. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, God's word tells us two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. What does God plan for us, particularly in our marriages? when all seems to be collapsing around us and the losses and the trials and the perplexities and the difficulties and the obstacles seem manifold. Well, let me begin by saying something that I trust we all know and believe, that nothing surprises God. God is omniscient. He knows all things. There is not anything that God does not know. And along with being all-knowing, God is proactive. Our God is not a reactive God. He is not in heaven having to figure out what to do or how to lead people after this catastrophe. He is proactive. In fact, there is no situation that any of us will walk into ever that God is not first there. He is ahead of us as a good shepherd. Jesus, as a good shepherd, is ahead of his flock of believers like us. He is not a cowboy. The Lord Jesus does not drive us like we are cattle. He is a shepherd that goes before us into every situation ahead of us in love and wisdom and protection and provision. And so this all-knowing God whom we trust and love 
knows all about the future. He knows all about your future and my future. He knows all about this nation's future. And he has written the future, as it were, before any of it happens. And he's given us his holy, inspired book, the Bible, to tell us the future before any of it unfolds. And as we read his word, especially in this time of loss and stress, as we read his word, he'll tell us in his word what is around the next bend in our lives. He'll tell us what's over the hill that we cannot see to the other side. He will share with us precious promises that we can bank on as we journey through our lives around the bends in the road and the hills in the road. He will give us precious promises found in his word that will remind us that he knows our future and he loves us and he will make a way for us where there seems to be no way. Now, when it comes to stress and wanting to give up, as sometimes we do in our marriages, God has a plan. And like every plan of God, it is defined in his word. It is an adequate plan. It is the best possible plan. And often his plan is counterintuitive to our thinking. His ways are above our ways. And God has a plan for you if you are married in these days of uncertainty and pain and loss in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. God has a plan for us who are married. And the plan that he has I would like to encourage you to think about as falling down insurance. Have you ever thought of your marriage as being falling down insurance? Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10, again. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. God has willed and planned it, if you are married, that you have falling down insurance in the person, love, care, and interest of your mate. Beth and I have been married for 36 years. Next to the Lord Jesus, she's the best decision I've ever made. We have falling down insurance in our marriage. There have been times, plenty of times in our marriage where I have fallen down with discouragement, with despondency, with disorientation, and she has been standing, and she has lifted me up with the grace of God, the promises of Scripture. And there have been other times in our marriage where she has fallen down, and I, by God's grace, have been standing and tenderly have been able to remind her of who God is and what he's promised us, and I've lifted her to her feet. Those of you who have been married, I think that you can relate to what I'm saying. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. For two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. For if either of them falls down, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. When I officiate a wedding ceremony, I give a biblical charge both to the groom and to the bride. I always begin with the biblical charge to the groom. Why? Because he has initiated the marriage covenant. He has proposed marriage to his girlfriend, who then became his fiancée, who then became his wife. I start with the man and the biblical charge to him as the groom because he initiated the marriage covenant. But I also start with the biblical charge to the groom because God is calling him to be the servant leader the priest of his own marriage and family. 
And so he needs to respond to the biblical charge given to him as the servant leader of his marriage, of the servant leader of his home. After I've given the biblical charge to the groom, I turn and give the biblical charge to the bride. But let me tell you what is partially in that biblical charge to the groom that I begin with. In part, I say to him, shield her from anxieties and fears. Give comfort and help and strength in times of sorrow and weakness. In other words, if she falls down, lift her up. And then as I move off the biblical charge to the groom, I turn to give a biblical charge to the bride. And in part, I say to the bride, as God has prepared you to be his perfectly suited companion for life, will you love him, comfort him, and pray for him? In other words, if he falls down, you lift him up. Now, because Mrs. Job was smashed, battered, bewildered by the tremendous stress and loss that she encountered, clearly she had fallen down. She wasn't thinking of lifting her husband up. She was thinking that he'd best give up. Job 2.9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, I want you to consider marriage, if you're not married, and marriage, if you are married, as being a container, a beautiful crystal bowl a holy container, and by God's design, that holy container called marriage, your marriage, if you're married, holds a lot of lifting up the fallen down. Your marriage, this beautiful crystal bowl, is to carry a lot of beautiful instances where one of you lifts the fallen other up. In light of marriage being a beautiful crystal bowl within which God wills it that the standing mate lift up the fallen mate, Mrs. Job at least made two critical errors in her understanding of her situation. With all of her losses, with all of her stressors, she made at least two big mistakes in sizing it up, figuring the future, and so forth. Number one mistake, Mrs. Job overestimated her husband. Mrs. Job overestimated her husband. She told him to curse God, and she figured that that he could make God do something that she thought was a good idea. She thought that if her husband Job cursed God, he could make God kill him. That is an overestimation of her husband. None of us make God do anything. None of us make God do anything. God is proactive and God is not reactive. And God does whatever he pleases. And then we have to live with whatever God has had pleasure in doing. So she overestimated her husband. The fact was that the Lord God was the giver of her husband to her, and her husband was a gift to her, but he was not the giver. God was the giver. You see, the giving 
was way above Job's pay grade. Only God can give you a mate if you're going to marry. Only God can give you what he wants for you to have. He's the giver. We're the recipients. So Mrs. Job overestimated her husband, and she did something else, a second error. She underestimated her God. So on the one hand, she made the mistake of overemphasizing Mr. Job. On the other hand, she underestimated God. And these two errors go hand in hand. They hang out together. They spend time together. They're bedfellows, these two errors, of overestimating a person and underestimating God. And it's easy for any of us, as easy as falling off a log, to make these errors, to overestimate some person and to underestimate God. These two walk together. They're buddies, these two errors. You say, okay. How do these errors, if they crop up, how do they look in marriage? What does it look like if one or both of the married parties overestimate a person and underestimate God? What does that look like? Well, let me tell you some of what it looks like. Some persons go into marriage expecting that their fiancé, who will turn into their husband or turn into their wife, will give them meaning or will be a flawless listening ear. Some people enter marriage thinking that their mate will give them significance or establish their whole identity or be just the perfect friend and the perfect lover. Some people in marriage believe that their partner is to fulfill their deepest longings or to shield them from every bad thing that could happen or to comfort them to their core of their being. No, I'm sorry I have to break it to you, but that is not the way it is. It's very wrong, because all of the things I've gone down are God-sized accomplishments. There is no human that can deliver these things for another human. There is no husband that can deliver this for his wife. There is no wife that can deliver this for her husband. This is something that only God can give. And back to going back to Mrs. Job, she overestimated her husband and she underestimated her God. Let me tell you three ways that she underestimated her God. There's probably other ways she underestimated God, but I'm going to give you three. You ready? One, she underestimated God's unchangeability. You do know that God is unchangeable. He is. God is the lighthouse, and we are the ships being tossed around at sea. Like a lighthouse, God does not shift. God does not move. We are the ones shifting and moving and being tossed about by our circumstances and our trials and our losses and our stresses. God is unchangeable. He is the lighthouse, and we are the ships. God doesn't change with the passage of time. God does not change because of changing circumstances. God does not change with our positive or our negative opinions of him. He's a lighthouse. He doesn't change. 
We are the ships. He is the lighthouse. God does not change. And Job cursing God, according to his wife's counsel, would not change God. So she underestimated God's unchangeability. The second thing she underestimated is God's mercy. She underestimated God's mercy. As you know, near the middle of your Bibles is a 150-chapter book of Psalms, 150 inspired psalms or songs that God had psalmists write, 150 of them. And when you do a little study in the book of Psalms, when you read the book of Psalms, by the way, if you were to read five psalms a day for a month, you'd read through the whole book of Psalms, wouldn't you? The book of Psalms, if you consider the book of Psalms, many, many of these psalms are troubled and even angry psalmists questioning God. And some of the questions raised by these inspired psalmists sound almost indictable with respect to disrespect for God. And yet, God is merciful. He was merciful, and God continues to be merciful. And God didn't strike the psalmist David or Job dead when they were real with God, when they were a bit edgy with God, when they were blunt with God. And if you doubt somehow that God will be merciful, even especially in the face of you questioning him and you being disappointed with him and you being even angry with him and you complaining to him, in case you doubt the Lord will be merciful to you in those attitudes, check out how many of the 150 Psalms express honest, gut-wrenching questions, disappointments, anger, and complaints to God. Our wonderful God has broad shoulders. He can take our raw and our unfiltered emotions. I mean, think about it. He already fully knows our questions. He already fully knows our disappointments. He already is well acquainted with our anger, and he's already mindful of our complaints. And so we inform such a God of nothing when we vent. It doesn't tell God anything he doesn't already know about us. To give you some examples of the raw, unfiltered, blunt calling out to God that we see in the Psalms, Psalm 10 verse 1 says, Why dost thou stand afar off, O Lord? Why dost thou hide thyself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? And then later in this book of Job, in chapter 30, verses 19 to 21, Job, referring to his God, says, He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to thee for help, but thou dost not answer me. I stand up, and thou dost turn thy attention against me. Thou hast become cruel to me. With the might of thy hand, thou dost persecute me. Here is Job, a man who is well-pleasing to God. Exhibit A, when Satan challenged faith in God, and God said, have you considered my servant Job? 
Here is Job not sinning with his lips, but feeling these emotions and calling out to God with authenticity and genuineness and realism. His pain, his complaint. God had mercy. God has broad shoulders. And God took what Job said. So Mrs. Job underestimated God. First place, she underestimated God's unchangeability. And in the second place, she she underestimated God's mercy. But there's one more. She underestimated God's plan. She underestimated God's plan. She figured that her plan was better than God's plan. Isn't that easy to do when we're suffering? when we're enduring losses, when we have more questions than answers, when we have pain and problem and predicament, isn't it easy to think somehow that we need to take the wheel of the ship and we need to plan because God's plan somehow is inadequate? That was what Mrs. Job concluded. She concluded that her plan was better than God's plan. And she concluded that the grave was superior to the grinder. And she insisted that prosperity was always preferable to pain. And she said death was her prescription to heal her husband's disease of catastrophic disaster. And apparently, by commending death for him, she was somehow perfectly okay with becoming a widow. And she suggested that getting out of was a lot better than going through. She believed that gain was always to be chosen over loss. And she believed that if you've lost it all, that life wasn't worth the living. That was Mrs. Job's plan. Clearly, when she made the plan and articulated the plan, she was fallen down. She had hit the dirt in her anger and in her hopelessness. And so what happened next in the true story? And what did God intend to happen next in the true story? If you look at verse 10, you'll see a few things. You'll see the picture of a still-standing husband stooping down to lift up his fallen-down wife. And if you look at verse 10, you'll see that Mr. Job saw right through his wife's overestimation of him and her underestimations of the Lord. And in verse 10, we see Mr. Job's integrity that God commended for Satan's attention and the integrity that Mrs. Job knew that he still had after his losses and stresses. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Here's a case where the losses and the disasters of the story of Mr. and Mrs. Job, those things knock them both down. I mean, all your children killed at once? Most of the assets on your balance sheet being stolen? Your employees dying and being murdered? 
Those things, those circumstances had knocked Mr. Job and Mrs. Job down. But oh, Job, based on his faith and confidence in God, he stood up. And he was in a position to lift up Mrs. Job. But in so doing, he was blunt. He didn't gild the lily. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't tell her what he thought she wanted to hear. He was emergency room direct. You know when you go to the emergency room and they're trying to spare your life? The doctors aren't that polite with each other. They order each other around what needs to be done to save her life. Job was emergency room direct in what he said to Mrs. Job as he lifted her up to her feet. Basically, he told his wife three truths. Number one, you're playing the fool. Number two, the good and the adverse both come from God. And number three, God knows what he's doing. As he was lifting her up from her fallen down state, he told her, you're playing the fool how you're thinking and speaking. The good and the adverse that we experience both come from God, and God has a plan, and God knows what he's doing, and it's a good plan. She needed to hear that. Now, on the truth that God knows what he's doing, I want to share a quote from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle said, quote, Nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering and permission. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God, and all things are working together for the believer's good. End of quote. Do you believe that? It's true. You know, believing that will lift you up. And quite often, one spouse has forgotten that, so they have fallen down, so they need to be reminded of that by the the spouse that believes that. Remember, one way to look at marriage is it's falling down insurance. And so with good theology, Job lifted his wife up out of curse God and die. He reminded her, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then the editorial comment, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Bless the Lord and bless Job, that Job lived out Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 within his marriage in the most stressful and difficult season of his marriage in the middle of a catastrophic crisis and loss with respect to his family, with respect to his businesses. And in the living out of Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10, that was the power, the example, the model that God used to lift up Mrs. Job. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor, For if either of them falls down, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls down when there is not another to lift him up. Then after living out Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10, Job did something else. He glued together his marriage in an Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12 way. What does that say? Ecclesiastes 4, 12. And if one 
can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You know, when you get married and you don't have Jesus Christ in the prominent place of your marriage, this is what you're like. You're a strand as the husband, and you're a strand as the wife. And if you do not braid the third strand of Jesus Christ into your marriage, you are maybe a slipknot marriage. That knot may hold or that knot may not hold. We have enough two-strand slipknot marriages. We need a whole lot more braid marriages where we have not two strands, but three. The Lord Jesus Christ in his prominent place, in his persistent place within your marriage relationship. And when you have him in the middle of your marriage, you're braided together. You're not slip-knotted together. And your marriage will stand the test of trial and loss and stress. Do you have the third strand in your marriage? Oh, I'm not asking you if you're born-again Christians. There are plenty of born-again Christians who are two-strand marriages. They don't give Jesus Christ any place in their marriage. And they're just slipknot marriages. They may hold on and they may not. I'm asking you, if you're married and you're born-again believers, do you have the third strand of Jesus Christ braiding you together to withstand the tempest? That is life. This is a day when we emphasize marriage, and, and we do so at a time when we are in the midst of a national disaster. What does God will for our marriages, given that we are living them out currently in a disaster, in a catastrophe? Persons having lost things they never would have imagined they'd ever lose. Persons who have passed away that we do not yet have their bodies. How does God want your marriage to function in days like these, dark days, extremely difficult days? Truly, these are for better or for worse days. Clearly, these are together we overcome days. I want to conclude this message by giving you five takeaways, five things I hope that you will put into your lives as you walk out of this building and into the future God has for each of you. Number one, don't overestimate your spouse. Don't look to your spouse to supply for you that which only Christ can supply for you. Second, don't underestimate your God. Third, lift up your spouse if he or she is fallen down. Lift up your spouse if he or she is fallen down. If they are crushed by the circumstances of life, the losses of life, the stress of life, lift them up if they're fallen down. Number four, keep believing what you know to be true of God in the sunny days. When the days were sunny and you considered the word of God and you see what the word of God says to be true about your Savior, 
remember those sunny day truths found in Scripture in these dark days of often despair in our country. Let me give you two examples of sunny day truths that we are not to lose in the dark days. Number one, God does not change in the day or in the dark. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and yes, forever. Don't lose sight of that in the dark. You knew it in the day. Don't lose sight of the daytime, sunny day truth that God knows what he's doing. It's easier to believe God knows what he's doing when it's sunshine and the wind that's at your back. It's harder to believe that God still knows what he's doing when all around you that you love and appreciate is crumbled. Don't lose sight of the fact God still knows what he's doing and he has a plan and he's working that plan. A verse that has meant a lot to me in my Christian life and probably to some of you as well, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Will you notice it doesn't say that everything is good. A lot of what we've experienced isn't good. Let's be real. But God says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. You know, if I set a nice big bowl of salt in front of you and said, have a nice lunch. Or if I set uh, a nice big glass of cooking oil, drink up. Or if I spread on your plate a nice inch thick uh, meal of flour, You're not interested because none of those things in and of themselves are good. But when you work them together with some chocolate chips and butter and you bake them, you get chocolate chip cookies. And who doesn't like chocolate chip cookies? Careful now. God has a plan. He's working the plan. Not every experience in the plan is good. But he works every experience in his plan for every one of us together for good. He makes chocolate chip cookies out of all the ingredients we wouldn't swallow by themselves. Don't forget that. Job 2.10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In other words, should we accept the butter and the chocolate chips from God and not accept the oil and the flour? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So four things I want you to try to put into your lives as we leave today. To review, don't overestimate your spouse. Don't underestimate your God. Lift up your spouse who has fallen down. Keep believing sunny day truth in dark days. And fifth, fight to keep Jesus as the third strand in the braid of your marriage. Do you know why I say fight? Because if you don't fight, he won't be the third strand in your marriage. The default position when two sinners come together as husband and wife, the default position without Christ does not put Christ in the middle of everything. And so you and I are going to have to fight 
to keep Christ as the third strand in our marriages in these dark days, in these difficult days, in these days of despair for many of our countrymen. We're going to have to fight to keep Jesus Christ as the third strand in the braid of our marriages. See, Pastor Rob, how does that look? Well, we fight to keep Christ as the third strand in our marriage by fighting to maintain certain disciplines. You do realize that your life is a sum total of how you made choices every day of your life. If I eat terrible and don't exercise, enough days that I'm going to get overweight and maybe die of diabetes. That's how it works. All of our lives, the aggregate, the total of each of our lives is made up of many different additions, daily decisions, daily decisions, daily disciplines that either we were involved in or we weren't. So what kind of daily disciplines will keep Christ as the third strand in the marriage braid of your marriage? Bible, coming to the Bible each day. Prayer, looking to the Lord in prayer. Letting the Lord speak to you in prayer as you speak to him. Counting the blessings. Sitting down with your maid and saying, let's consider the blessings of God. Past, present, future. Reviewing the promises. Going to God's word as a husband and as a wife and reviewing what has God promised us in Christ. All of the promises of God, we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. The third strand, the one that makes a braid marriage and not a slipknot marriage. Fight. Fight to keep Jesus Christ as a third strand in your marriage. Fight to have Bible time daily. Fight to pray daily. Fight to count your blessings daily. Fight to review your promises found in God's word daily. Now, you may be here and you've come to church for the first time in your life today or you've come to the church for the hundredth time or the thousandth time in your life, but you could come here without salvation. Coming into a church like this no more makes you a Christian than coming into a garage makes you a mechanic. Do you know that Jesus is your Savior? Beyond the shadow of any doubt, Do you know that you've trusted him and him alone to make you right with God? If you don't know for sure, then you're not saved. But you can know for sure. Today, from the privacy of your heart, in the seat in which you sit, you could say to God something like this, God, I need the Savior. My sin separates me from you, and I can't clean myself up. I believe that Jesus Christ died in my place. And I believe he rose from the dead to show that my sins are paid for in full. Right now, in the best way I know how, I transfer my trust to Christ alone. Make me new from the inside out. Help me to grow in my love for Jesus Christ. Give me courage to tell someone I trusted Jesus for my salvation at church. 
before I go to bed today? If you prayed that God heard you, and I welcome you to God's forever family, now live for him. Whether you're one minute old in Christ or 80 years old in Christ, live for him. Love him and love his word. Love his people. Love the lost. Live for him. In closing, I just want to say that we have enough slipknot marriages, just two strands, that may hold, the not may hold, or the not may not hold. We need three-strand braided marriages with Jesus Christ in the center, the stabilizing, strengthening center of a marriage. Would you stand with me, please? text that we have been considering together. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And if anyone can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for its practicality and power. We pray for our commonwealth, Lord, a time of such darkness and despair and difficulty. We pray, Lord, that you would be Lord of our lives and Lord of our marriages. We pray, Lord, that we would not overestimate our mates nor underestimate you. Help us to fight for the third strand to be in our marriages. Fight for it like it's our oxygen. Fight like it's our life or death. Bless those standing before you, Lord, Bless each marriage, bless each single person, bless each widow or widower. Lord, together we would be the body and bride of Christ. Together we would live for your glory. Today we would draw our strength and our hope from you and your word. Today we would change agents in a country that needs to be encouraged and helped. We pray that you sensitize us to the needs of those we meet in the grocery store and on the streets in the jitneys, wherever we are, Lord, there are people in need of encouragement. Help us to be encouragers because we have first found our encouragement in Christ and the promises of Christ in his word to us. Thank you, Lord, for this time together, and we continue before you now. In Jesus' name, amen.